All right, well, we have been underway now for a while. We started this series uh, just before summer. We've been looking at all of these different doctrines, but it is fitting that the last message be on the last things. That we end at the end. Which is great because so many people are interested in, well, what is after this life? What is the end of all things? What does eternity shape up to be? How does that relate to us? What do we need to know? That's really going to be a lot of our heart today, to understand that in a rapid way. I mean, again, this is a topic where literally thousands of books have been written from all different traditions. And all the different traditions are going to have different views and different ideas on some of the nuances of all of that. And frankly, I'm not terribly interested today in going into all of those types of details. That is not my heart. That is not my plan. Right? We could spend all kinds of time on pre-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, all-millennial, post-millennial, I have a Labrador, you have a... Like, we don't need that. Right? That is not where we need to go today. Where we really need to go, what we really need to remember and emphasize as we look at the end of all things is really realizing that at the end of all things, what we're dealing with is the kingdom. The kingdom. This amazing, glorious thing that Jesus comes into the world to establish. In fact, uh, as you read the Gospels, which by the way, because I know every single one of you are doing your chronological read-through of the Bible still. um, That's awesome. Like all all seven of you. All right. So, um, you know, as you're reading, you're you're coming into the New Testament here real soon, right? And you're going to start reading through the Gospels and you're going to to see these books and you're going to see all this great red lettering and red ink on the page, which is the words of Jesus. And when you do, I want you to notice something as you read. I want you to notice how many times Jesus brings up or talks about the kingdom. In fact, I would dare you to circle Every time he talks about the kingdom. Because by the time you get through just the gospel of Matthew, you will circle that word over 50 times. People say, oh, well, Jesus talked about money more than anything else. No, he talked about the kingdom. He talked about the kingdom far more than any other topic. By the time you get through all of the gospels, you'll be well north of a hundred times that Jesus refers to his kingdom. But see, this word kingdom is sort of a tough word to to hold. It's slippery. It's like jello because it means a lot of different things at a lot of different times. Sometimes it's something that's present. Sometimes it's something that's future. Sometimes he's talking about a rule. Sometimes he's talking about a realm. Sometimes he's talking about righteousness. Sometimes he's talking about the reign. There's all these different things that he talks about. Sometimes it relates to the Father. Sometimes to himself. Sometimes to the Holy Spirit. It's a word that when you see it, it doesn't just communicate one thing. It communicates many things. And and, and so what we see, basically, when you study the life of Jesus, is that the kingdom really kind of kicked off or inaugurated uh, at the first coming, right? So the world is in darkness, it's bleak, it's broken since Genesis. God has been bringing covenant to try to restore people to himself, but nobody really gets the idea of covenant. Everything is fractured and broken, but light pierces the darkness. Jesus comes and the kingdom begins. And so he says in Luke 17, man, if I am among you, then the kingdom is among you. Right? Jesus 
is the embodiment of everything about the kingdom. The kingdom and Jesus have this synonymous nature. They're not the same thing, but where Jesus is, the kingdom is. And so he wants us to get that, that man, as soon as he puts foot to the earth, the kingdom has arrived. It's not something we have to go, when's it coming? Jesus says, it, it's here. I've come. It's, it's here. It's cloaked. It's invisible, but it's here. And then he says something really cool. He says, I invite all of you to advance the message of the kingdom that has come. He says, I invite you to share it, to spread it, to help others become aware of the fact that it's come. And so the message of the kingdom advances through the ministry and message of the church, right? We go and we share. And so Jesus says, man, the kingdom is like a seed that sprouts into a tree. It's this field that grows a crop of wheat and in their weeds are, are sown. But it advances, it increases, it builds up momentum. More people realize they have life in the kingdom of Jesus. But then at Jesus 2.0, man, everything shifts into high gear. Where he comes and says he sends out his angels in Matthew 13 to separate wheat and weeds. To pull in the dragnet and separate the good fish from the bad fish. It's like at that moment the kingdom takes this huge jump. This ginormous kind of expansion. And it's that expansion that dominates all reality then for all time, right? So we're part of this, this movement where the kingdom begins really small. Real unassuming. Right? Questionable. And then over the course of time it builds momentum. It increases it drives to this eternal place see that is the kingdom of the reign of christ but here's something about this kingdom that i think is so important for us to understand as christians this kingdom this radical idea of jesus is invasive it is invasive there is nothing comfortable about this kingdom. There is nothing simplistic about this kingdom. When this kingdom comes into the world, it comes crashing into a world that doesn't necessarily want what this kingdom offers. It comes as a liberator, but the world sees it again just as an invader. They go, we don't know if we want that because we love the darkness more than the light, lest what we do be exposed. So, when we look at the cross, or we look at Christ, or we look at His kingdom, what we really need to do is realize, own, accept, that it's a kingdom which divides. See, we would love to make the kingdom really cool, but the kingdom divides. The kingdom is a line. It runs straight to the cross and it says, here's the basic reality. There's two sides to this. There's two sides. And Jesus openly and welcomed the communication that said, there's just two sides. Jesus reinforced time and again that there are just two sides. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, he said, do not think. Don't even let it enter your mind. Don't even start to toy with the idea that I have come to bring peace to the earth. This is Jesus. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. So he shows up with his sword and he just draws the line. 
right? He says, that's what I've come to do. He says, don't you realize that I've come to separate families? I've come to separate affections. I've come to separate ambitions. I've come to challenge what you most love. Do you love this side of the line? With the pleasures of this side, the wants of this side, the ideologies of this side. Is this what you want? He says, or do you want this side? Because I've come to separate. He says in verse 38, actually verse 37, whoever loves son or daughter, anything more than me, man, it's not worthy. those are not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me, it's not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, again, this is Jesus. And, and I say this. I, I make this point. I want to make sure we get this, this line really well because I want us to understand that some of the caricatures of Jesus, some of the mythology that surrounds him makes him like this wussified professor that just gave Proverbs and drank chai tea. That's not Jesus. Right? He wasn't there in his little black turtleneck just waxing eloquently saying, here, here's a kind of, I don't know, half-calf vanilla latte doctrine. Now he was triple shot espresso, man. He says, here's the line. He says, here's what I've come to do. Here's what I've come to say. Here's what I've come to expect. Jesus was very clear about that division. And, and, and for some of us, that might be a, a little uncomfortable, but, but I think it's really critical if we're going to talk about kingdom. And we want to talk about the kingdom that Jesus actually preached. Then we have to realize he's saying it's otherworldly or it's thisworldly. That's what it is. It's either idolatry or theology. It's either ultimately eternity away or eternity with. That's the message of the kingdom. Go back and just kind of peruse the parables. Of Jesus, he was very clear. It was crop or cropless, wheat or weeds, people of the kingdom or people of the evil one, good fish or bad fish, wise virgins or foolish virgins, good and wise servants or wicked and lazy servants, sheep or goats. He didn't say, and some weird sheep-goat mix that you just stare at at the fair and go, why didn't that win a ribbon for weirdness? You know, like, he says, no, it, it's always just one or the other. Right? One or the other. In fact, even in Matthew 25, he'll say, Come, blessed to inherit the eternal life that I've given, or away, cursed to receive eternal punishment. Sincerely, Jesus. I mean, it's like, you know, he, he, he vocalizes the line. He establishes the or. He says this or that, one or the other. And I just want to make sure that we, we really capture what Jesus says. Because again, so often it's like people think God is mean and Jesus is nice and God is wrath and Jesus is kind and Jesus would never do any of that stuff because he just hung around with kids and pet, was petting bunnies all day. and was you know, like, No, he, he had some real standard to the kingdom. Real expectation. He wasn't Mr. Ideological Diversity. He wasn't into this kind of religious pluralism. He says, no, it's real, real easy. I come, I bring a cross, I have a sword, I divide, I'm making it very clear. There is no and, it's just purely or. 
And I can't make this point strong enough in dealing with kingdom because what you even have in the discussion of kingdom is a kingdom of light versus a kingdom of darkness. You have an enemy versus the good guy. It's just black and white at the end of the day. Now, I'm not saying I know everything about every detail inside there, but I can tell you fundamentally what Jesus communicated was a very black and white standard. He says, I've come to do this. I've come to bring this type of division. And that division, that tool of the divide itself, is the gospel. The sword, right? That blade, that scalpel, is the gospel. If, if there's anything else that divides, we've, we've really missed it. And in part, I, I get into this because, again, I think it's important to understand that the good news of Jesus, the cross of Christ that all Christians revere, is offensive. It's offensive. I mean, if, if, if taken in its context, it's very offensive. It's offensive because it says, first of all, Jesus came to this world because we're offensive to God. That's offensive. If somebody says, you're offensive... That's offensive. Right? You come up to me after church, you're like, you smell offensive. We're not friends. Right? Um, if you said, oh, you offended me today, I'll be like, well, you offended me. Why? Because you said I offended you. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, um, offense escalates easy. So offense is offensive. But the gospel says we were offensive. The gospel says, hey, man, here's the good news. You can be saved, but you're cursed. You're estranged from God and you need to be rekindled. And nothing you do can change your state. It's only what He has done. All of your goodness that you chalk up won't count. All of your kindness in the world won't get you one inch or close, closer in, into the gates of heaven. It just you're not, you're not making any movement through what you do. See, those are offensive things. The cross is just an offensive tool. It is intrusive. It gets in the way. And that's what Jesus communicates. And I would say to us as evangelicals, as a church, among other evangelical churches, um, this is a very important thing to note. Right? I mean, I, I, I can't stress this point also enough that um, it, it, it's very easy... Uh, to, to do one of two things in our culture as evangelicals. One is to say, how do we take this offensive thing and make it not offensive? You, you know how we do that? We stop preaching it. I mean, that's a very convenient way. Now, we preach all of the things that can flow from it. Good life, good wife, good husband, good kids, good health, good bank account. Here's what services you, you here's what serves you. God wants to bless you. God wants to use you. God wants to adore you. God wants to uplift you. That's all true, but here's the deal. That came because of this bloody stump. And because we were offensive. Right? So, if you want to lose the offense, stop preaching the cross. The other way, if you want to lose the offense of the cross, just preach other things that are more offensive so that people don't pay attention to the cross. That's the other real popular one. How, how many uh, things can we say to our culture that are incendiary that won't move one soul from hell to heaven? 
How many ways we, can we make some subgroup of the populace just mad at the church because we got on some bandwagon of some moral, political, or social issue that frankly Jesus goes, what are you thinking about? Because all of that doesn't matter without this. Right? I, there was an article this week about churches taking on the IRS. I'm like, really? Please tell me you're taking it on because they said you can't preach the cross. No, it's because we can't preach between a potential Mormon and a Muslim, or a Muslim and a Mormon, or a, maybe a Christian Muslim thing. I don't know. Um, really? Politics? You want the IRS coming after you for politics? They're freaky. They're coming after me. I want to be the cross. Not this other stuff. Now, you may have opinions on that, but I look and I go, man, if we irk uh, our culture, if we offend a populace, if we're ostracized from a segment, may it be Christ crucified. Because that's the one thing that can change everything. All this other stuff, we're, we're just trying to, to move the burning coals to different piles to keep the fire small. This other stuff doesn't change a thing, but the cross will change everything. And so Jesus says, man, let the gospel be the one thing that stands out among everything. Because it divides. In fact, in John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Amen. Right? We go, sweet, the cross. Man, that can liberate. This is why God sent Christ to free. How is that offensive? Well, not everybody wants that. Verse 19. And it says, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wickedness hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that they may be seen clearly that his works have been carried out in God. And then here's the clincher. Here's the divide. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you have a red letter edition, those are red letters. That's again Jesus. Saying here's the bottom line. There's this line. And all of eternity comes down to this line. All of eternity comes down to this cross. All of the eternity comes down to the gospel. And whether you're going here or here is totally related only to this. Only to this. Nothing else. Let me help us on what I mean by nothing else. Uh, you know, you go, oh, the gays are going to hell because they're gay. No, they're not. Did you know heterosexuals don't go to heaven because they're heterosexual? It's true. Gays don't go to hell because they're gay. Heterosexuals don't go to heaven because they're heterosexual. Right? The philanthropists, they're not going to heaven because they're generous while the terrorists are going to hell because they're terrorists. If you're on the other side of the equation, the rich aren't going to hell because they're rich and greedy and don't want to share. While the poor are going to heaven because they're poor and they had nothing in this life. Jesus is really clear. You believe in me? No matter what your category, I can save you, fill you, change you. This can change it all. 
If you reject this, all that other stuff, whatever. Now you're storing up baggage, that's true. But destination's the same. Believe in Jesus this way. Don't believe in Jesus this way. His kingdom is that simple. We like to complicate it. Well, what do you mean by in Jesus? J E S U S. You know, that's what I mean. What do you mean by the gospel? This thing. Well, it's so um, narrow, so elitist. I'm just the mailman. Right? I just deliver mail. I just seek to quote these great red letters of Jesus that are very, very uncomfortable. Where he says, here's who has eternal life. People over here. And everybody over here, Jesus says, the wrath of God abides on them. Why? Because they didn't believe. That's all. They didn't believe. He doesn't say for all the bad stuff they did. Everybody does bad stuff. Everybody on that side did bad stuff. This just takes care of it. But over here, wrath. Over here, blessing, life, hope. In fact, if anything, comes down to a life that is anchored in eternity one way or another by this. And so in this life, this is what counts. In this life, this is the thing that matters. Right? This is the thing I want us as Christians to get and to own and to love above all else. If we want to get feisty or passionate or angry or foreboding or make a big stink about something, please let it be this. Please, because that's what Jesus made a big stink about. That's what Jesus threw all of his passion into. Because wherever we stand in this life, based on this issue, again, anchors our destiny. It anchors our destiny. And so what is that destiny look like? What happens at the end of things? Well, that kind of leads us into this discussion about the afterlife. Kind of like after that last breath, what is your first step? Right? Because people want to know that, right? When that final bit of air escapes, when that mix of gases just goes into the atmosphere around your body for the last time, you are, are shut down, you close up, and something new happens. What is the new that happens? Well, it's going to be predicated on this. For some, that first step, that first conscious moment, those eyes opening up, that first sight, heavenly. It'll be a heavenly reality, right? In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 8, it says, We know that when this earthly tent we leave is taken down, when our body shuts down finally, we die and we leave it, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God Himself and not by human hands. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Right? So when your heart stops, when your brain shuts down, when the kidneys cease to function, everything goes dormant, you have a whole new life that begins. If you had this. 
right? There's this new soul body that you have. It's not the final body you're going to have. And in fact, you're not even in the final place you're going to be. We're going to see that in a minute. But you're at this place where you're with the Lord. If you've ever had friends that are like seven-day Adventists, and they go, no, 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 you just take a really long nap. Hey, man, I love sleep. I love naps. But that's not what happens, right? You don't take a long nap, and then one day you, you get woken up by, you know, Absent from the body, present with the Lord. You die here, you go to be with Him. If you were in Christ on this side of the line, not by any of your works or deeds or goodness, but only by His grace and sufficiency by taking your sin and Him giving you His righteousness. That's it. That's it. Right? But you're there. So it's a whole new world. Right? Because of the gospel. But then what about those who didn't know? Right? What about those on the other side of the line that said, hmm, I'm not sure. Well, for them, it's a different location. It is location the Bible calls Hades. The Bible actually calls it Hades. And, and there's a story in the Gospel of Luke about a wealthy man and a poor man. The poor man was Lazarus. And Jesus tells the story, and he kind of gives us the portrait of this place of Hades. He says the poor man, he died, right? It goes into the story a little bit, and then it gets to verse 22. He says the poor man, he died and was carried off by the angels to Abraham's side. Right? Uh, the, the Bible in the Old Testament and in part of the Gospels would call that location paradise. Right? Remember when Jesus, when he's on the cross, tells the one thief, today you will be with me in paradise? Right? So that, that was the location, Abraham's side, whatever else, when Jesus is telling a story, that's the location. It says, and then the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so he called out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in the flame. It says, and then in verse 26, and besides all of this between us and you is a great chasm. It has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to there may not be able and none can cross from there to us. Right? So what you get again is Jesus saying either or. There's paradise or there's Hades. There's heaven, bliss, or there's Hades and torment. Now as a freebie because you showed up, what, what theology teaches us, what we see in the New Testament is when Christ rose three days later, he emptied paradise. He just took it to heaven. Right? Once the work of the cross was finished, all that were in paradise who put their faith in the coming Messiah, paradise emptied out. Paradise is now with Jesus in heaven. Right? It's cleared out. Now you've got heaven and Hades. That's the current standing model. That's the system. But again, this is sort of this layover idea. But the general essence and the spirit of both is very clear, right? Uh, the rich man is not good. The rich man is in anguish. The rich man is in pain. The rich man looks across and says, I wish I could get there. And the other side that's secure and safe and blessed, says it's impossible to go between the two places. There is this anchoring effect. In fact, what we have to know and take some ownership of is that the layover does not offer the opportunity to change your destination. The layover is like you're in this hub and they're in that hub. You have one boarding pass to get on one gate to one plane, and it's not going to go anywhere else than where you're already headed. Right? Layover stands. Now, I, I, I say this in part because the Bible says it, in part because I, I hear other messages out there that try to challenge this. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that the judgment comes. You die, then judgment. 
See, I, I say this because, again, one of my favorite writers, God bless him, C.S. Lewis, had some thoughts on this, and I love him, but this one I think he's wrong on. See, C.S. Lewis believed that, you know what, when you die, you're going to get a second chance. You're going to get there, and then you're going to realize the supreme value and glory of God, so it's this one final shot. Like, who doesn't say yes to that? Uh, I don't know. I can see you and all, but I'm still sold on that flying spaghetti monster. You know, like, um, really? I don't think that's going to roll that way. Or you have individuals like Rob Bell who says, you know, but in the end, it's all Christian universalism. Everybody gets convinced of Christ eventually in eternity. And if you let time go on long enough, everybody is going to pile into heaven. It might just take some time for people in Hades or hell to realize, but they will. And they'll all be in heaven in the eternal scope of things. Now, I would say both with Lewis and with Bell, um, that's very comforting. And kind of in our own little human psychology, we even go, and that seems fair. And philosophically, it brings me peace. And emotionally, it's nice to know that, that nobody would suffer some eternal fate this way. So maybe, maybe I should just hold out hope that that's true. I would love to, too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not some lover of the notion of hell. You know, people will think sometimes when pastors preach on this that we're sitting there in our office going, yes, yes, you know, we're, you know, I want to grow up and be a fire and brimstone preacher. I know that does not, you know, we know more than anybody. Uh, Weeks like this, pastors, we have to pray, Jesus, oh man, this is not going to be popular, but it's true. It's true. And, and I say that because, again, whether it be Lewis or Bell or anybody else would, would kind of try, try to challenge the idea that destinations can change after death, um, my thing is, give me one verse that even comes close to alluding to that. And, man, I'm, I'm ready to have a kind of a doctrinal dialogue. That's awesome. You know, what we see time and time again is a very definitive statement from Jesus. It's this, it's this, it's this, it's or, it's or, it's or, it's or. Once this happens, it's settled. Right? Literally dozens of verses go that direction. Not one verse gives us this this human, and I would say sinful human, comfort that says, oh, okay, maybe it's not as particular as I would like, or as I thought, or I don't like, or whatever else. No, it's... Life, and then cross or no cross, then death, and then this layover. This layover of heaven or Hades. But like I said, it's a layover. It's this undetermined season of time as the plan of God rolls on on the earth, right? As the kingdom continues to advance, as the cross continues to divide and cut and expect and, and, and really put out there, here's what it means to follow Christ, right? It continues to do that job until that Jesus 2.0 moment when everything is going to come to a head and the eternal worlds are going to set in. From this world to what the eternal worlds are going to be, from Hades and heaven to what is to finally and permanently set in, right? That's where we go. And so this eternity, 
the sense of the worlds to come, it begins with something foundational to all Christianity, whether you are Orthodox, you're Catholic, you're Protestant, you're whatever. Man, this is all the same. We all believe that one day there will be the resurrection. The resurrection. As Jesus rose, not only will we rise, all people, all people rise. In fact, you see that in Revelation. It discusses this idea of two different resurrections. There's a resurrection for those in Christ. There's a resurrection for those who are on this side of the divide. But then there is also a resurrection for all on this side of the divide. Right? Everybody who is in heaven, their spiritual entity, their soul, and their earthly body, they are recombined and they are rejoined into oneness. And everybody in Hades, their body and their soul is rejoined as well. There's just one giant resurrection, two different groupings of people, right? So the fullness of your person on both sides is established, right? Fullness, both sides established. And it is there, fully established, that the Bible says we come before the judgment seat. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 12 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, And from his presence, sky and earth, they fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Everybody, every single person that has ever had the image of God, body, soul, together, there before the throne. I don't know how many billions upon billions of people. It's every single aware person ever is there. And there's this throne and everything is fled away. Everything is just dispersed. It is creation and creator. That's it. And it's at that judgment seat that really two things happen. There is a verdict and there's sentencing. The judgment seat does both simultaneously. Right? The first is going to be in this area of verdict. And this is going to be done, basically we could say even by category. That at the judgment seat, he starts to judge first by which category you fall into. In fact, in Revelation 20, verse 12, the second half, it says, and the books were open. Right? So everybody's before the judgment seat, and the books are opened up. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Chapter 13, verse 8 says, of the Lamb. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So let me capture the scene. Christ and God on throne. He is the Lamb who was worthy, who was slain to receive glory and honor and dominion and power, right? All of that in Revelation 5 going all the way through. It's all about Jesus all on the throne, everything else. But now we're all before Him. And all these books come out. And I have no doubt, if there are billions of people, there are trillions of books. Because every book has every one of our offenses. Every book is just laced with every attitude, every affection, every action. Every time we gave God the finger, every time we did a good thing for bad reasons, all of it. Just trillions upon trillions of books. In other words, it's the evidence against us. Right? And we go, I'm not a bad person. You know, I'm sitting there going through this week. I spent... A lot of time this week just confessing how bad of a person I am. 
I mean, honestly, I'm sitting there just looking. That attitude is bad. I'm still bitter about this. I can't believe that person's an idiot. And I pray for their idiocy, but my anger. All right, so, um, you know, like, lots of stuff, right? And all, all of it, just volumes, volumes of books. So the books are piled everywhere. It is an incredible library of sin. But, but I want you to notice um, one interesting little tidbit here. Notice that it says, and then there was another book. It doesn't say books. Right? So there's all these books. Then there's one other book. Just one. And it's a real simple book. You open up the book. The book says, Matt Boswell. Next to it, it says, Jesus is paid in full. Step to the right. That's all it says. That's all it needs to say. It basically says, you know, you can grab all of Boswell's books. Yep, load them all up because you know what? Jesus took all of those. Every offense in every book that says the life of Matt Boswell, Jesus said, I took all of that, put his name in my book. Because that's the book that counts. Did I do anything to be in his book? No. He did everything so I could be in his book. So all of my books don't count against me because he had them all count against him. So I could have life. So there is this judgment by category. In fact, in Matthew 25, it says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd uh, separates the sheep from the goats and He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on His left. Right? I mean, it's just it's the way it's going to work. He's going to say, Man... Just step to the right because of what I've done for you. Because of what I've provided. Because of what is finished. That's the verdict. And with that comes the sentencing. And the sentencing is a little bit more, not so much sentencing like we understand it. It's more like compensation. All right, everybody is now going to receive what they've earned. Right? Now, toward the saved, compensation is sort of unique. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, it says, For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for the work he has done, whether good or evil. Right? Or you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's to be revealed by fire, what we have done. All of the works that we have done as Christians. Right? We're talking about saved people. We're talking about uh, sheep. Talking about in the cross, in Christ. Now we're talking about what we have done in our life as Christians. It is to be revealed by fire. And the fire will test which sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Here's the deal. If we are in Christ, our destination's set. If we are in Christ, we're saved. If we're in Christ, we're always going to be with Christ. That's the promise. You're all in country, so to speak. But what we did as Christians, how we did it as Christians, how we invested as those who follow Christ, that will be the difference between much reward in eternity or little reward in eternity. So go back to last week, our stewardship, how we used our time, how we used our talents, how we used our treasures. That's where God's going to come and say, okay, so I watched your life and and I saw that, man, you loved investing your time into 
the church. You loved investing your time into the lost. Man, you were racking up some serious blessing. I, I saw the way you handled your talents, that you were always trying to figure out, how can I use my skills for others? How can I use my skills to advance the kingdom? How can I make sure that I make a deposit in the lives of those who need the deposit? He says, man, I saw that, and it racked up. I saw how you used your treasure, that it was more about advancing my kingdom. It was less about it being yours and more about it being mine. Man, here, you have more for eternity. Now, for some of us, we'll say, no, 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 it was my time, my talents, my treasures. I used all three T's for me. And he'll say, great, you used them for you. And they're gone. That's it. They're done. Hope it was awesome. Because they, they didn't forward at all. At all. And we may go, come on, what, like, what good is like reward in heaven? I don't know yet. But I have a feeling nobody's going to be like, uh, eh, no big deal. At all. Right? In fact, we'll get into that in just a second. But for those who know Jesus' compensation and a positive reward, somehow usable in eternity for special things. But then there's also compensation toward the lost. It says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. In fact, in Romans 2, 5, it says, Because of the hardness and impotence of your heart, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's what I would ultimately say. Um, everybody who is going to be with God forever is with God forever, but their experience in that, that eternity isn't going to be equal for everybody. It's going to be conditioned on what what you did in this life to give God glory as reward. On the flip, everybody who ends up in hell, they're all going to hell, but the level and type of hell, the torment nature of that is going to be conditioned on what they did. It's still their destination, but it's shaped by their activities. Right? The level is conditioned by their decisions in this life. So, it's really one of two eternal realities and it sets up as one of two eternal results. And the results, when they all come down to it, is what we've been saying. The first result is that for the lost, it's life in God's hell. It's life in God's hell. When you read the Bible, you see this in Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. It says, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life... He was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, people read the Bible and they go, man, there's a lot of symbolism regarding hell. They'll say it's dark, it's fire, it's weeping, it's grinding, it's torment, it's uh, parched, it's, you know, all these different things. And sometimes from that they go, you know what, that's just symbolism. That's not meant to be taken literally. And I'm like, but I see a lot of really negative symbols. It just sounds bad. They stack up into something bad. And it's interesting about the symbolism because what they do actually speak to is that all five senses are engaged. Right? You can smell whatever this is. Like sulfur. Taste because you're parched and you want water. Certainly touch. Hearing. There's weeping and gnashing. Sight. It's dark. Right? Stack it up as you like. Nothing about it is a place we want to be. Nothing about it. Right? 
I also said that it's God's hell. I say that because people have this idea that, like, you know, Satan's, like, you know, in hell. You know I mean? Like, whatever, you know, like it's his abode, you know? He's just down there with all the metal bands that OD'd, you know? And they're having a party. He's not in charge of hell. There's nothing in the Bible that says he's in charge of hell. Nothing. He doesn't reign there. He just gets sent there. Like everybody else that rejected God, right? That's what it is. It is God's hell. And I want you to understand that. It's God's hell. God's in charge of it. He's the one that sends people there. Jesus says that. Right? Depart from me. Jesus is the one that says that. And so it's God's hell. But, in this hell, that's God's hell, and it's an eternal hell, it is a hell that fulfills. Which is going to sound really weird. But 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says this, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Here's what I mean by fulfill. I want you to notice that nobody ever rejects heaven. You're not going to talk to an atheist who says, Oh, I just hate the notion of heaven. They hate the notion of God. They don't want God. They don't want worship. They don't want to submit. They don't want to surrender. They don't like the idea of an omnipotent being that wants to be worshipped by human beings. So they reject God. They just don't reject a pleasant afterlife. Nobody rejects the notion of a pleasant afterlife. So what they have then in their afterlife is exactly what they wanted. Throughout their whole life, God was saying to them, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. And they said, I don't want to do thy will. So when they die, then what God says is, Okay, then thy will be done. You're left to yourself. You're left to your own devices, your own agenda, your own passions, your own wants, your own heart, everything else. I give it to you 100%. I'm giving you full latitude to want and be as passionate as you ever could be for everything you've ever wanted. But then here's the caveat. God says, but all of that created stuff was mine and you don't get any of that. So if you wanted sex your whole life, man, hell, you can have as much as you want. You just can't find a girl. It's kind of like that. Because I made those. Matter of fact, you can't even have sex. I made that. You can't actualize anything. You've got to treat hell as like an empty room filled with all of your internal wants. No way to express it. No way to capture it. No way to actualize it. No way to do it in any single way. You just say, thy will be done. But you're lost in all of your appetites, all of your wants, all of your desires. He takes away all the safeties of his common grace that suppressed some of those things in you. You become the deepest, truest you without any intervention of God. Isn't that nice? No God in your existence in any way that is a blessing. All the blessings, the simple blessings that... God gives even to the unrighteous, it says, like in Matthew or Acts, where it rains and it brings crops and we're fed and he restrains evil and he doesn't allow the human condition to become so crazy psychotic that it's just nothing but anarchy and bedlam all the time. He says, that's all gone. You wanted a life without me, you have a life without me. You're locked into the real you. So people get what they want. They didn't want God or anything to do with God. Jesus great. That's it. In one sense. In another sense, they very much get God according to the Bible. And it's not just the eternal hell that fulfills. It's the eternal hell that punishes. Matthew 25, 41 and 46. It says, And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal flames, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
and these will go away into eternal punishment. And, and people say, see, so they're not in the presence of God. Hell is the absence of God. I want to let you know that hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the absence of all of the kindness, goodness, love, and blessings of God, but it is not the absence of God. In fact, it says in Revelation chapter 14, 9 through 11, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or hand, don't worry about all of that weird detail. I'm not even going to go there. Um, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, pull, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur, and the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. Man, I am not saying these are easy words but I'm saying they're the words. It is the consequence, it is the reality, it is the eternity for everybody that said, I see the line, but I, but I want to be over here. I get the line, but I want to be over here. Right? That, that, that's the reality, but then there's the other side, there's the cool stuff. Which is for those that says, man, I see the cross, I see my need, I see my sin, I bow my knee, I love your kingdom, I want your future, I love your eternity, I want to be with you, God. For those who embrace the gospel, the eternal result is not everything we just saw, it's everything that we want to long for. It's God's good, redeemed, and perfect earth. Right? Did you know that your permanent, eternal home isn't heaven? You're just a passing through, right? I mean, that's, that's heaven. You're just passing through. Earth is your home. In fact, in Revelation, as it starts to wrap up, verse, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Sorry, surfers, no waves. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there shall be mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. That is the future, right? That's where we're going. And, and some people, they, they look at this and they go, oh, no, man, here's heaven's pose with me in a diaper. No, that's not. Don't work on that in the mirror. That's not you. That's not what you're going to do, all right? Break that habit. There's not, it doesn't even say there's clouds, man. There's no clouds in that description. Here's what's cool. The world started as a garden. God said, I'm with you in a garden. I have things for you to do. The world ends as a city garden. Right? This huge city. This idea that we go, man, heaven's going to be such a drag. We got cool stuff here, man. We have like Disneyland and Disney World. And we have Epcot. We have tall buildings. And we can bungee jump and all that cool stuff here. And then heaven's a drag. You've missed it. It's totally missed it. Here we're finding out that the world is refabricated to be way more superior, way better. We're living in a cool city. Some of you go, I don't like the city. Well, don't worry, it's got gardens in the city. Right? You read the text, it goes on later, it says there are roads, there are kingdoms, there are kings that come into the city and out of the city, they go back to their kings. Don't start thinking that this is some boring one little city. This whole world is transformed, it's expanded, it's changed, it has greater depth, greater creativity, greater awesomeness. Right? This is why you want to store up reward, it's why you don't want to invest here, because with your money, what can you buy? 
cable. Who cares? Right? High speed internet. Whoop a doo. You know, it's like there. Who knows what you get to do? But I guarantee you it's going to be way cooler than anything you get to do here. Right? Way cooler. Let me tell you why. First thing, in this eternal condition with God on His earth, that condition perfects. It will perfect you thoroughly, right? Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. Right? Everything about us that is broken will be fixed. We will have a capacity that is similar to Christ. That's what we'll have. I mean, that is huge. You're not going to be limited by the stuff you're limited by. I love that. Right? There'll be nothing that is accursed anymore. Man, we'll be worshiping Him. Why? Because we're perfected. It's perfect. Imagine what your life would be like now. Perfect mind. Right? That your brain 100% is in use. I know they say 10% is the average usage. Some of us know people that are like 3%. They drive us crazy. You know, other people, um, they're like 15 or whatever. But you're going to have 100% capacity mentally. 100%. Imagine what you could do with 100% capacity. Your emotions will be perfectly balanced. Whoa! I mean, imagine that. I mean, there's not even going to be that like, oh, that makes me mad. It's going to be like, that's just funny. You know, I mean, like, perfect emotions. Perfect body, right? No ailments, none of that brokenness. Perfect insights, right? Uh, Think about the things, I'm going to get into this in just a second, but think about the capacity for what you could create. Because you would know algebra really well now. You know, like, you know, for those of you that stink at that, you're like, ah, I was more of an English person. Well, you'll be able to do geometry. It's awesome. Right? And for you math people that have no social skills whatsoever, it'll be awesome for you and for us. All right? So, I'm going to get in trouble. All right, so, perfects. I will preach better. All right, so, it perfects. It also reveals, right? First John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't have a clue what we're going to really be like yet. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. This is why Revelation 22 starts to wrap up and says we will see Him face to face. Face to face. I mean, it's amazing. Think about the, the, the most amazing concert you've ever been to or production that you've ever been to, and you're like, wow, man, there was sound and lights and talented people, and it was awesome, and we were cheering, yeah, you know, like all of that. Nothing in comparison to what this will be like. Right? Imagine billions and billions of people whose entire eternity has been shaped by the one who is on the throne, right? And suddenly it's like, here comes the boom box of the angels. Boom, boom, boom. You know, and it's like lights and sound and energy and enthusiasm and excitement and we're all operating at 100% capacity for things that actually matter. And not like when I was at the fair the other night and it was Pitbull. Like, really? You can decide about Pitbull? It's not even a nice dog, much less a nice name for a guy, you know? And they're they're excited and lights are flashing. It doesn't even compare because we'll see him face to face where he reveals. So he perfects, he reveals, and in that he fulfills. He fulfills. And what is fulfilled is our mandate. 
Here's what I want you to know about the Bible, real quick, and I'm closing here with this. Um, you have bookends to the Bible. Genesis, verses 1 and 2. It's a bookend. Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. It's a bookend. Everything else is commentary. Right? Those are the bookends. And I want you to think about this very legitimately. In Genesis, God said, here is my will for man. I want you to create. I want you to subdue. I want you to expand. I want you to, to do all these things that take what I've given you and make it more. Why on earth do you think that when we roll into Revelation 21, the city comes, we're all there, that you would think that God says, ah, that order is old, don't do anything. No, I firmly believe that really what we're looking at for eternity is we get there and God says, you know what? I'm still unleashing that same thing. Now you have full capacity to create, so go create. You have unbelievable potential to go explore. Go explore. Go and do. Go and find out. Go and see my glory. If you think, oh man, we're going to be stuck just to this planet, just, man, I just really don't believe that. I look and I go, everything that God has called us to do, to give Him glory, to be like Him, to follow in His stead as His creation, is to, to man, see a much more expansive reality, not a narrow one. I don't know what that looks like for you Trek nerds. You're going to build the Enterprise and go check stuff out. Great. It's awesome. I hope you did the three T's really well, because that's expensive, you know? Um, I don't know. In fact, just to encourage you, there's this book right here by Randy Alcorn. This dude's a stud. Um, and it's called Heaven. This book is worth your time. If you're somebody that says, you know what, I'm just more wed to this world than the world to come, I get more excited about here than there. I don't want to die. I want to stay alive, mainly because that seems boring and this seems cool. You need to read this book. Because this book will let you know that this place kind of sucks in comparison to that. There's some cool stuff here, granted. I think there's some really cool stuff here. The Hobbit's coming out. Who doesn't love that, right? So, um, that's all I got. All right. Um, I'm a simple man. All right. Um, but that is so much more. If you think this is the fullness of everything that you would think is cool, you're, you're not even... Not even close. And so I close with these great words from Revelation 22. We end at the last chapter of the Bible, some of the last words. The Spirit and the Bride, they say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Because surely I am coming soon. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hard things of your word. Boy, Jesus, we were looking at a lot of your really, really hard words. It's like, hey, let's wrap up a series by talking about hell. But that's also about the gospel. You suffered hell for billions. You are intimately connected to hell, for you took our hell. So that we could have your heaven, and eventually your earth, and with that your image, and sit with you on your throne and see your Father face to face, and explore your eternity. We love you and thank you in your awesome name. Amen.